1: On today's California Report Magazine, how the California dream has been shaped by a thirst for water.
0: As a kid growing up, I remember these irrigation canals slicing through our neighborhoods. And I never thought, where were they going? To whom were they going? And by what right?
1: Plus, a daughter muses
2: on the ways California's changed since her parents first came here to chase their dreams. The San Francisco of high-tech, high-rent, and $10 avocado toast will never know the splendid opportunities laid at your feet 60 years ago. And we meet the
1: winner of the nation's longest-running
2: Asian-American beauty pageant, not
1: your typical contestant.
3: Whoa, like, you were extremely vulnerable up
1: there. I'm Sasha Coca, and it's the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories.
4: Well, the idea is we don't believe in rainmakers. What do you believe in, mister? Dying cattle?
0: You really mean you can bring rain? He talks too fast, he can't bring anything. I <laughs> asked him, can you bring rain? It's been done, brother.
4: It's been
5: done.
1: That's a clip from a 1956 film called The Rainmaker with Burt Lancaster and Katharine Hepburn. It's about this guy, this con man, who promises to bring rain to towns that have been stricken by drought. And it's inspired by a real story. There was a man here in California in the 1900s named Charles Hatfield who claimed to have this secret mixture of chemicals that he could shoot up into the sky and make rain come down. He's just one of the many historical characters who come alive in a new book from Mark Arax called The Dreamt Land Chasing Water and Dust Across California. Mark is a former LA Times correspondent, and his books about California and the West have won a number of awards for literary nonfiction. He lives in Fresno. Hey there, Mark. Hey, Sasha. So, this book starts with your own story and the story of your grandfather who came to California from Armenia after the Armenian genocide. In part, he was drawn to California because of these descriptions in the letters that his uncle sent. Can you read us one of those letters?
0: Here find an Eden of pomegranate and peach, grapes that hang like jade eggs, watermelons so capacious that when you finish eating their delicious meat, you can float inside their shells in the cool waters of irrigation canals. Our means by the thousands have come. We are farming raisins. We have started two newspapers, a theater group, a literary group, and two coffee houses. You must see it with your own eyes to believe it.
1: So, you know, those kinds of lyrical descriptions about how abundant California is have always been part of why people want to come to this state and you write about this you know going back to the 1850s with these myth makers of California you know the guys who kind of sold people on the place
0: grandpa w- when he gets here he sees that he's been sold a bill of goods a little bit it's a lot of hype and it's this kind of desert that's being reformed i won't say reclaimed because that means that uh, the the man was here before the desert no the desert was here before man and he sees that it's it's not quite how his uncle sold it to him or how the sellers and myth makers of California were selling it to the world. And then there's um, James Hutchings, who starts this incredible magazine called Hutchings Illustrated California, a literary magazine that was explaining California to its new inhabitants. And in, in that explanation was changing the place. And... Um, You know, it was like the New Yorker of its day in the 1860s. And this was the hype that was selling California as the gold rush itself was selling California.
1: What made you want to write about water and the California dream, Mark?
0: I think all my books have been kind of stories of place. As a kid growing up, you know, you're dumb to your place like all kids are. I remember these irrigation canals slicing through our neighborhoods. And I never thought, where were they going you know, to whom were they going? And, and by what right?
1: But it kind of became a quest for you to figure out through history and now, who owns and controls the water flowing through those canals?
0: Well, look at the proposition of the first dreamers who came after our natives and seized this land from the natives was, okay, we're gonna take this thousand miles of, of the edge of a continent and we're gonna call it one state. And we're going to have to move the water from where it falls to where the people are living. And in some cases, that's a 700-mile hike. And, you know, how was that done? Well, we built the grandest reclamation project in the history of man, the Central Valley Project, and then the State Water Project. Uh, But that dilemma still exists, which is, okay, you're taking from one place, giving to another. Uh, The people who live in the place you're taking are angry about that theft. And so there was baked into it all were these water wars that have become eternal. And then this system, which was so magnificent and still is, is cracking because of all the demands we're putting on it.
1: Well, you just won a James Beard Award for a piece in the California Sunday Magazine that's actually an excerpt from this book about a modern-day water empire and America's richest farmer, Stuart Resnick. I mean, here's a guy who's never actually dug a ditch or planted a seed. He controls this empire from Beverly Hills. What does his story say about California's relationship to water now and about the California dream?
0: The Wheat Barons, Isaac Friedlander, who was six foot seven, he lived on uh, Knob Hill in San Francisco, and so did James Ben Ali Hagen these barons who made all this money in gold and they farm from afar the valleys. So Resnick is just a throwback to these men. And so he's controls more land and more water than any single person in the state of California. And I say he, I should add his wife, Linda, because she is an equal partner. It's this remarkable story of how folks, you know, with enough wealth can capture the flow of rivers and the groundwater. And with that, Plant, you know, almond trees all the way out to the horizon and then bring folks across the border. So they're not only bending water, they're bending man because they're bringing people across the border. People are coming. They're working for them in those fields.
1: I mean, this is such a complicated history that you're untangling in this book, you know, going back decades, centuries, really. Uh, But as you say, water has always been something that people in California are fighting over where are we headed as a state when it comes to water and being able to fulfill the vision of the California dream, having enough water for everybody?
0: Yeah, well, in my lifetime alone, the, the, this state has grown from 11 million people to 40 million. I mean, how many more can we take? 50, 60? These are the questions that we never start off with, but that is the question. Where do, where can we get to? It, it's clear in, as you see the development of California in this book, you see that we've overdeveloped suburbia. And we've overdeveloped the farmland, and the tool to do that was water.
1: Mark Arax's new book is The Dreamt Land Chasing Water and Dust Across California. Thanks, Mark, for joining us.
0: Sasha, thank you so much.
1: been talking a lot on our show about the California dream, what it means to people across the state, whether the promise of that dream is still alive. We've been asking listeners to write a letter to the first person in your family who came to California with a dream. This week's letter comes from Carolyn Gray Anderson. She lives in Los Angeles, but was born in San
2: Francisco. Dear mom and dad, your marriage may not have lasted, but your romance with San Francisco did. You headed west with advanced degrees in city planning and met on the job in the early 1960s. The world, your oyster. I grew up already nostalgic for your San Francisco. Your North Beach haunts, your episodes with glad-handing local politicians and literary notables, your fantastic rotation of flats from Telegraph Hill to Knob Hill to Chinatown. Apartments that cost you roughly a fifth of your entry-level incomes. Dad, you left rural Arkansas for the Golden State when a college buddy promised you a summer gig in a Balboa Island restaurant that served up steaks to vacationers and celebrities. The sand was warm, the girls were suntanned, and you ate like a king. No wonder you decided to finish your degree on the Pacific Rim. You earned your master's from UC Berkeley and worked under four San Francisco mayors in the heyday of redevelopment agencies. You and your fellow planners contributed to projects like BART and the Model Cities program. And you played hard, too, forming a cadre that persuaded developers to admit you to the vacant top floors of newly built skyscrapers for your impromptu cocktail hours. In 1969, you scraped together a down payment on a Petro Hill Victorian. You bought it sight unseen and for 50 years, there in the banana belt of the city with a sweeping view of the bay, still could not believe your good fortune. Not everyone who knew you realized you spent many a Thanksgiving or Christmas morning walking through town, handing cash and food to people who live on the streets. Mom, Fort Worth born with a little Madison Avenue under your belt? You spent your early career holding your own among the mansplainers of the day, a highly educated person who applied her creative ideas to urban systems. You teetered on I-Magnon's spike heels as you pushed your baby's pram up and down San Francisco hills. Literate and lipsticked, with a penchant for vintage Porsches, you were just as comfortable with the John Cheever set as you were with long-haired hippies. No one was surprised when you, The poster child for 1980's Dress for Success retired from HUD to embark on a second career as a fashion designer and instructor. Mom, you now live far away, migrating between nests in Dallas and northern New Mexico. You can be confident that this boomtown boomed best when you boomed with it. The San Francisco of high-tech, high-rent, and $10 avocado toast will never know the splendid opportunities laid at your feet 60 years ago. Dad, you didn't live to hear me read you this tribute. You were happy as sitting by the water, whether the bay at sunrise or point rays in the fog of summer, and you lived your last months near the Pacific Ocean, whose sirens had called you decades earlier. By your example, Mom and Dad, I traveled and lived far away, but when I returned, it was on purpose. Like you, I take great civic pride in the California city I chose, this place where people think no one is actually born, though I, a native San Franciscan, meet native Angelinos all the time. I inherited the true scrappiness of the West. I'm the product of two people who gravitated to San Francisco's legendary gateway to dreams, still a magnet for the hopeful and ambitious. It's a heartbreaking town without pity we all love. Your daughter, Gray. That was Carolyn
1: Gray Anderson's letter to her parents. We'd love to hear your letter to your family's original California dreamer. We're especially looking for letters to dads for our upcoming Father's Day show. We've got an easy form on our website where you can tell us your family's California dream story. Check it out, californiareport.org. And now we're going to talk about a new podcast we're launching here at KQED, which is the station where we produce the California Report. It's called Truth Be Told. It's an advice show made by and for people of color. And I really love the tagline. It's like the friend you call after a long, exhausting day, the one who will laugh, cry, bitch and moan with you, the one who gets it. It's hosted by my colleague, Tanya Mosley. She's here today to bring us a preview of what the podcast is all about. Hey there, Tanya. Hey, thanks for having me. And I love that tagline too, by the way. So tell us about the idea behind Truth Be Told? How did it get started? And what's it all about? So you may remember that we
6: had a podcast a few years ago by the same name. And when we were thinking about bringing it back, we were thinking about what are the discussions we want to have today, now, in 2019. And we heard from our audience after doing several listening sessions that people want to be in conversation with each other. And when I say people, I'm talking about people of color, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian folks. They want to have conversations about the things that they're dealing within this world with each other. And so we thought it'd be great to have a platform where people are able to do that.
1: And it is an advice show. So you get questions from listeners. I want to play the listener question for your first episode, which just
5: came out. Is it okay to feel huge, phenomenal, amazing joy when it seems like the rest of the world is burning? This
6: idea, I thought, was an interesting one to take on. And I thought about who I'd wanna take this question to. Um, When you talk about feeling joy in times of turmoil, someone who has lived a long life, who has been through a lot and seen a lot, could probably give us a lot of context and understanding. And so someone I call on a lot is my grandmother. She lives in Detroit, Michigan, and she's 92 years old.
1: I thought I could never laugh again. You know, and I have like a,
4: a brick in my chest. It wouldn't go away, but I still have responsibilities, and I still
1: love the Lord. God gives me that joy that I can't explain and makes it possible to, to live through it. It makes you stronger.
6: That clip from my grandmother always makes me emotional.
1: And your grandma, I mean, she lost a child. She's been through... She lost two children. Two children. She's been through so much heaviness. But, I mean, I teared up when I heard the episode. You can hear the delight in her voice. You Mm -hmm. can hear the way that she still looks at the world with hope and, and positivity. And so many people are having trouble seeing that
6: That's right. right
1: now. We really forget that, like part of life, part of
6: joy, part of love and happiness is about also feeling those other things and experiencing those other things. It's only when you've gone through something can you really appreciate
1: joy and happiness. You are tackling lots of big questions from listeners. One of them has to do with the way race and popular culture influence who we love, how we choose our romantic partners, who we marry. And you call that episode Colonized Desire. Colonized Desire is really when the
6: colonized person, so think about many people of color, most people of color, covets or um, desires the colonizer. So typically white folks. But for all the things that we've been told are beautiful about white people, so maybe blonde hair, blue eyes, all of these things, and you desire that and maybe at the peril of, like, your own self-identities. We met a couple, um, Patrice and Tien. They're a lovely couple, and this was something that um, they talked to us a little bit more about.
4: If, like, we're holding hands or whatever, or or we, like, we have a kiss, and it's just, like, double takes (laughs) because they just don't assume that we're even together, that somehow we're just two strangers standing very close to each other (laughs) on the train. I'm
7: Patrice Peck. I am a Jamaican, American first generation black woman.
4: I'm Gu. I am a Chinese American first generation man.
7: Remember that time you came to um, church with me and my grandma for Mother's Day in Connecticut? Everybody was so nice to you at church, and I'm like, really nice and be. it's an all-black church, <laughs> <laughs> like a storefront black church. Yeah. And you came in, and somebody from the church, he's like, "Oh, like, are you the Uber driver?" And we're like, "Uber drivers don't come into buildings with you."
4: <laughs> I didn't have my arm around you. What do you think? Like, I was an Uber driver trying to get fresh with you on church Sunday. <laughs>
7: <laughs> it's just that jarring moment of, "Whoa, my." expectations or assumptions were totally wrong but they also realized there was no indication that what they're seeing couldn't be true and i think if people were to see more diverse representations of interracial couples you know specifically two people of color together then that would open their horizons to who they date it's so funny at work, you know, a couple of months ago or like last year before people got to know you, I would always talk about you and they'd be like, oh, my gosh, you guys like sound amazing. And your boyfriend sounds amazing. And then some of them, like when they saw on Instagram or like in person that you were Asian, they were like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know he was Asian. But then they, as soon as they said that, they would say out loud to themselves. But I don't know why I wouldn't have thought that. Like, you know what I mean? They're like, actually, like there is nothing to make me assume he wouldn't be and so we we have people questions their preconceived notions of who can be with who and why they think that
4: it all goes back to our first date just in terms of we really presented to each other who we were and everything that you've said i can't help but think about like everything that you've done has always just been on trajectory of how you wanted to tackle you know um ideas of representation
7: representation is important because it can empower people, but the lack of representation, it just reaffirms the notion that like you're not important. You're not like your culture is not good enough.
4: Me knowing you this entire time, you're very pro-black. You know, black is beautiful and everything. How does that now feel in terms of just us dating?
7: I love black culture. I love being black. Um I love black music, I love black TV, movies, fashion, all that. And so It is noticeable to me, like, that all of that's lacking when I'm with your friends and family. But at the end of the day, I'm dating you. You know what I'm saying? Being in an interracial relationship with you has not been difficult because I feel like you understand me. I understand you in terms of what we're going through. And I challenge you sometimes, and you don't take that as an affront.
4: You always challenge me and push me to learn. And in return you also are open to being challenged and wanting to learn. And that's what I love most of all.
1: I love you. <laughs> Why they are, they are, are so they? adorable. Aren't they? They're so cute. Tanya, what else do you have coming up in the, in the season?
6: So uh, we have an episode called Enough. It's from a Latina woman who is asking, like, am i mexican enough i'm mexican american and i'm feeling that well-meaning white folks at home and at work um motherhood for women of color and issues within families and how to navigate that
1: that's tanya mosley host of the new truth be told podcast and advice show by and for people of color thank you for having me sasha thank you tanya
3: Miss Asian America,
1: the winner is... And here's something I bet you didn't know. San Francisco is home to the longest-running Asian-American beauty pageant in the nation. Sophia Ng! (laughs) At first glance, Sophia Ng has all the hallmarks of a typical beauty queen. She's 27, gorgeous, charismatic, but the night she won her title, she surprised her audience with what she revealed on stage. That she had battled depression and attempted suicide, she went on to become a therapist. And as reporter Sonia
5: Paul tells us, Sophia wanted to be a beauty queen so she could spread her message. At five foot nine, Sophia Ing never used to wear high heels. Now she's a pro. She became Miss Asian America last August. Since she's entered the pageant world, she regularly dons a gown, sash, and crown to attend charity and community events, like this year's Lunar New Year Parade. But along with the networking and modeling opportunities, Sophia spends her time doing what inspired her to compete in pageants in the first place. She counsels students at elementary and high schools in San Francisco. Today, she's at Lowell High, one of the most competitive high schools in the state. In a small office, a student tells Sophia about the painful relationship he has with his
4: mom. And she went on a rat. So like, same old, same old, useless. Um, she said something like, you guys were a waste of giving birth in Chinese. Oh my God. Something like that. So I'm just like, okay.
5: Like many of the students she works with, Sophia is also Chinese. She grew up in Hong Kong. She says many students and their parents hesitate to seek out therapy and that it may trace back to their culture.
3: A common feature of the culture is also that it's a shame-honor based culture. Um, It's also seen in the parenting style where not all asian Americans parents do this, but that they use shame and guilt to parent their kids.
5: Because parents also worry that if their kids need help, she says, that maybe something's wrong with them, or maybe they've done something wrong as parents. Which also goes against the pressure of presenting a good face to the world, despite whatever emotion you're experiencing. In fact, Asian Americans are three times less likely to seek out mental health services than white people. And they comprise only 4% of the U.S. psychology workforce, which is mostly white. That all influences the reaction Sophia gets when students come to her for the first time.
3: I've actually heard before, they're like, oh, I expected you to be like a white person.
5: Sophia says she was inspired to do this work by a therapist she had as a teenager. She was on her way to becoming a competitive athlete when an accident during a basketball tournament crushed her leg. She was 16 and I hear that basically my knee was completely destroyed. And her whole identity at that point was being an athlete. So while I was still like recovering physically,
3: my mind definitely began to sort of spiral downwards.
5: She had a hard time getting out of bed. She didn't want to hang out with friends. At her lowest point, Sophia attempted suicide by taking a bunch of sleeping pills. That's when she found herself in a therapist's office. I think at that time,
3: people in your personal life, they kind of have this need or urge to just sort of like get you out of that mentality ASAP. So they tell you to be positive, they tell you to, you know, not think like that, and just, you know, things will get better. And I think those were not the things I needed to hear at the time because it didn't make me feel listened
5: to. The night Sophia won the Miss Asian America title and talked openly about her suicide attempt, A common refrain echoed among the audience.
3: Whoa, like, you were extremely vulnerable up there.
5: They heard her. They knew what it meant for her to challenge the cultural pressures to keep those struggles quiet. On a Saturday night, Sophia is once again out as a beauty queen, this time at a banquet sponsored by a Bay Area Chinese association. She's joined by two other pageant winners, they're all dolled up for the occasion in long gowns and flawless hair and makeup. But not least, we have Miss Sophia's name. Sophia swiftly takes the mic. She introduces herself in both Cantonese and in English.
3: My passion is removing the stigma that
1: exists in mental health. And I'm currently doing that by doing a lot of speaking engagements. Especially
5: she says her passion is to remove the stigma around mental health especially for young people. A lot has changed for Sophia Ying over the last few weeks. She's left her job as a school counselor because she's moving back to Hong Kong. She hopes to someday start her own practice and launch a mental health consulting agency for companies and schools. Sophia's international move fits her new beauty queen title. She was recently crowned Miss Global as part of a worldwide competition. She says she'll continue to spread her message that it's okay not to be okay. For the California Report, I'm Sonia Paul.
1: And that's the California Report Magazine, your weekend storytelling show from the California Report. You can listen to all of our shows if you subscribe to our podcast, the California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Susie Racho is our director. Our technical producer this week is Rob Spate, and we had additional engineering help from Chris Hoff. We had production assistance this week from Valley Public Radio. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. The California Reports editorial team also includes Asala Sanapur, Peter Arcuni, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James
6: Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. College Futures Foundation, more graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book.